If you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, we'll be in verses 17, or 7 through 19 this morning. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew. And Matthew and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus and Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your perfect, inspired, and errant word that is effective to make change in our hearts and to bring about salvation. And so this morning, God, we submit ourselves to your spirit and to the word of God. We pray that it would be authority for us this morning, that it would be life-changing for us as we hear it read and taught this morning. Jesus, we want to make much of you, and so this is your time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A bit of crowd participation, if we could, this morning. Imagine a hypothetical scenario. You have a gentleman or a lady that walks up to another gentleman or lady and asks, how are y'all doing? And of course, because we're in the South, they say y'all, right? So how are y'all doing? And the reply comes, we're doing fine, we're just peachy. Oh, okay, that was unexpected. Usually, other than peachy, you would expect biz. Oh, I heard it. I heard it. Somebody help me out there. There it was, Ben. We're fine. We're just busy. How many of us, that's our default response? I think so often in today's world and in our culture, that is where we go. I've probably said that this morning to someone, and I'm sure someone in the room probably has as well. We're busy. That's sort of our default response. Anyone in the room this morning would say, I can relate to that statement. I have a very busy life, and I see some hands back there. Uh, It's okay. We can be a bit honest and transparent this morning, church family, that we just maybe sometimes feel a bit overwhelmed and a bit too busy. That's good because the Word of God meets us this morning right where we are. The Word of God in Mark's gospel meets us right there in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of feelings of being overwhelmed and having too much on our plate Um, there's good news for us. And that's that the Lord last week in the, the Mark's gospel has called himself Lord of Sabbath, that he is our deepest and truest rest 
And so when he says that, we should hear, as he says, I'm Lord of Sabbath, that, um, that he is in him, that we can have rest from worrying about salvation, that our salvation is not earned, it's not some system of merits and demerits, that he has accomplished our salvation, and in him we can truly rest. The anxiety of death and hell has to no longer be upon us because he is our rest. And this week, we continue in Mark's gospel And I think the Lord just in his providence knows that all of us are here at some time or another, but we may even be here right now of just feeling absolutely worn out and not necessarily from the perspective of worrying about our salvation, but just absolutely worn out from the busyness of our lives. And that's where Mark's gospel goes this week. And so if last week is rest, don't worry about your salvation, this week would be rest from the busyness, rest from a pressured life. And we see that in Mark's gospel in the way that Christ uh, is met this week in the text with hordes of people and how he responds as a result. You have in your bulletin a a handout. I don't do that often, but I had several points and sub-points and sub-sub-points, and so I thought it may be a little easier to follow this morning with that. If it's a help to you, feel free to use it. If it's not, you can use it... um, And as a basketball for the trash can later, and I will not be offended. Um, But in that, you see the first point, the first idea there that we see in the text, verses 7 through 12, the demands of a pressured life. Christ, our Savior, felt the demands of a pressured life as we often do as well. And so this morning we see in the, in the text, and as we've been walking through Mark's gospel, really two sources of a pressured life. For Christ. On the one hand, you have repeated collisions that Christ has with the religious elite. We've seen this in Mark chapter 2 and 3. Five different encounters that Christ comes into confrontation with the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees or the scribes or both. And we'll walk through those in a bit of a recap in a moment. But the other source of his pressure is the popularity that he has with the people. As a miracle worker, Christ has uh, gained a reputation, and that comes with the masses. And so he's pressured by the people that are hearing of him and, and wanting from him what they can get. And so first, though, as a bit of recap, if you've not been with us, we'll walk through these pressures from the religious elite because I think we need to fill them. They've, they've mounted, they've climaxed to this point in Mark's gospel where for the last several weeks, four weeks, we've seen these, these encounters, these controversies building on one another. The first we saw was in Capernaum where he forgave a paralytic man's sins. And as a result, the scribes accused him of blasphemy, a punishable crime in that day that was punishable by death. How many of us this week have, have been accused of something that would be punishable by death? Yeah, me neither. And the next week we saw that Christ calls to be one of his disciples, one of the most despicable people of that day, a tax collector named Levi, would go on to be called Matthew. He calls him to be his disciple. He was a man who was hated by the people. Following that, he went with Matthew and fellowshiped, had a meal around the table with a room full of sinners and tax collectors just like Matthew. And this was unthinkable for the Pharisees. They were infuriated that Jesus would keep company like this. That doesn't stop. He continues. Jesus and his disciples are accused of breaking uh, Sabbath law, or first, by, before we even got to Sabbath law, by uh, not fasting, keeping these religious rules that the Pharisees had built up. This was un- incomprehensible to the, to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, how Jesus could claim to be a rabbi, a holy man, and yet he didn't even keep the, the fasting laws that were in place by the Pharisees. No way he could be a holy man. He was a fraud. 
And then finally, last week we saw this deadly collision with the religious leaders over the issue of Sabbath. That Jesus' disciples were walking through a grain field and they picked a snack of grain and were accused of harvesting on the Sabbath, which would have been violation of Sabbath law. And then, to top it off, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he heals a man's hand, a withered hand, on the Sabbath. And so these were major breaches of Sabbath law. And as a result of these encounters, the religious elite are maddened with hate. They're furious. And they formed an unholy alliance with the Herodians. And again, remember the Herodians are those liberal, Greek philosophy-loving um, pagans that love Herod and Roman rule. And the Pharisees are a traditional conservative group that have extra laws up on top of their, their already numerous Jewish laws These are the most extreme ends of the spectrum that you could imagine. And they've come together and joined in an alliance because they want to destroy Jesus. How many of us this morning would say we have someone conspiring to destroy us this week? I doubted it. We think we live a pressured lives, overwhelmed by busyness. The pressure on Christ was immense. The pressure on Christ at this point had built and built and built to where people are actually wanting to destroy him. His every move was being scrutinized. His every word was being interpreted with malice. They were hanging on everything that he said, waiting for him to trip up so they could destroy him. And our Lord, being fully man, felt the pain, felt the emotion of this hatred. He felt the alienation that this would have brought, just like we would have. That wasn't the only source of his pressure. Again, remember, there's this building popularity that brings with it pressure as well. Look at again uh, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him uh, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to make, not to make him known. These verses showed the second source of Jesus' pressured life, his popularity. And again, at this time in Galilee, the multitude consisted of locals. At this time, locals who would have heard of his recent miracles. Again, the Capernaum healing of the paralytic man, the man with a withered hand at synagogue. This would have garnered a, a reputation and a, and, a, and a population of people that wanted to see and, and see what they could get from this one Christ. The text says it was a great crowd. At at this time, Galilee was densely populated. It was a small area with a lot of people living there. And so some commentaries estimate that there could have been tens of thousands of people here on this occasion. This was a massive group of people. And the number was inflated by those that had made the 100-mile journey from uh, Jerusalem, came as far as Idumea, the text says. Add to that the numbers from the Transjordan areas, across the Jordan, coastal cities like Tyre and Sidon. People had traveled a long way to see and to hear and to be healed or to be touched by this one Jesus. This was a massive response. When was the last time that you had tens of thousands of people clinging to you, following you wherever you went, wanting something from you? Yeah, me neither. But you can start to feel the pressure. You can start to feel the weight of this. And remember, people that travel a long way from a far distance will not be denied. You know what I mean? People that travel a long way for something feel like they've earned some sense of entitlement. 
right? So a bit of confession this morning. A couple weekends ago, a former pastor of this church who will go unnamed this morning invited me on a a duck hunting excursion. So uh, I said, absolutely. Got my stuff ready that evening. I was getting ready for bed, had all my, my camo laid out, and my gun and my shells laid out, and it hit me. I don't have a hunting license. <laughs> so I'm either going to go with the preacher, and two preachers are going to get arrested uh, for not having hunting license, or I've got to go and figure out how to get a hunting license. And so what do I do? Well, praise the Lord, Walmart is open 24 hours a day, right? So I load up and drive 20 minutes down to the Zebulon Walmart, and I walk in and go straight back to Sporting Goods, and I walk up to the counter, and I say, I need a hunting license. And she goes, we can't help you. We stopped selling them at 10 o'clock. But you don't understand. I've traveled quite a ways, 20 minutes drive, and I've got to go hunting in the morning. In the morning. Well, sir, I'm sorry. We don't sell licenses. Well, then can I speak with a manager, right? Because that's what you do when you need to get something done. you you got to speak to the manager. Can I speak to your manager? Because, see, an exception needs to be made for me because I'm forgetful. And I didn't do this ahead of time like I should have. And so now my problem is your problem, right? You've been there. Well, they were very kind, and the manager did sell me a hunting license so that me and Stephen, I mean that guy, uh, were not (laughs) hunting illegally, right? The point is that when people travel a distance whether it's a far distance or a distance at 10 o'clock at night, they feel like they should get the thing that they traveled for. And these folks are coming to Jesus, and they want access to Jesus. And they want whatever Jesus has done for these other people to happen for their wife or husband or daughter or son. And they are demanding of Jesus, these hordes and hordes of people, waves upon waves of people, all demanding Jesus' attention. And so this, this, this pressure was so great. You see in the text that it identifies that Christ was even in physical danger. Verse 9. He told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. How many of you have been afraid of that lately? That the crowds of people wanting your attention were pressing in around you so hard that you were afraid they were going to crush you. One of the disciples stayed close by on a boat, much like in the movies, you know, when someone's keeping the car running with the door open just in case a quick getaway is needed. That's the scene that Christ sets. That's what he asked for to happen would be a, a boat right out here just in case he needs to leave quickly. So you can see the scene, right? The popularity brought two kinds of people, the sick and the demonized. The sick, verse 10, for, they, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. This is the picture we have. It's of one of chaos, one of wild disorder, like a pack of, of piranhas feeding uh, on a feeding frenzy, and, and they're pressing in around Jesus. And the phrase here in the Greek, pressed around him to touch him, literally means that they were falling upon him and jostling him. That's how badly they wanted to get near to Christ. Add to the pressure from the sick, we see in verse 11, the pressure from the demonized. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. These unclean spirits are drawn to Jesus. They're attracted to Jesus, strangely fascinated with him, even though they knew that he was their conqueror. He was the son of God, the hated son of God that would ultimately be their demise. These unclean spirits were sinister spirits. We've talked about them before in Mark's gospel. Obscene spirits that brought about bodily harm and uh, psychological trauma, immense spiritual danger to their victims. And they're crying out with the earthly voice of their hosts, you are the son of God. What were they doing? Why would they be crying out? This is the truth, that he is the son of God. They're recognizing something that many of these multitudes are not even seeing. These are Uh, These are true statements that Jesus is the Son of God, but why would they yell this out? 
They were futile attempts to render Jesus powerless. William Lane in his commentary says this, that the ancients believed that knowledge of a specific name or the specific quality of a person made you uh, mastery over that person. And so they're speaking out the name of Christ, identifying, I know who you are, in hopes that they can thwart his plan or use him for their own reasons. In response, Jesus forbids them to even speak. And the tragedy here is that these demons knew who Jesus was. He, they knew he was the son of God. And this multitude that was attracted to him were only wanting to see him as the miracle worker from whom they could uh, receive something. But this wasn't the right time. These weren't the right sources to be announcing this great news. Danny Aiken says this, Jesus will fully be revealed, not by demonic confession, but by the cross of Calvary. And so Christ hushes the demons, makes them to be silent. Don't just hear this, church family, feel the weight of this. The ill, the feverish, the crippled, pushing and grabbing at Christ, falling over him, jostling him in the Greek. The demonized, ferociously sizing him up, howling his name in hopes that they can alter his plan or somehow, somehow deter him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees sitting back, watching every move, listening to every word that he says in hopes that they can pounce at any time to have him destroyed. I think it's easy for us that have been raised in church to miss the point of this text this morning, friends. Those of us that have been raised in church have rightly emphasized the deity of Christ, that he is fully God, and that's true, and we've rightly emphasized that. But sometimes we can do that to a fault and not see that he is also fully man, that Christ is human, just like you and me, and that at this point, the truth is that as fully man, he really felt the immense stress and strain and pressure of this situation, he was under incredible pressure. So let me connect this for us this morning. Jesus is the one who can relate and understand the situation for modern humanity. That Jesus can relate to the pressures of your busy and hectic and frenzied life. No matter how overwhelmed you feel by the busyness, the, the circumstances that you may have on your plate right now, no matter how overwhelming they may feel, Christ can relate. He's not far off. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, miss what you're going through right now. Listen to this description of, of motherhood and how even Christ can relate to even this. The life I've chosen as a wife and as a mother entrains a whole caravan of complication. It involves food and shelter and meals and planning and marketing and bills and making the ends meet in a thousand ways. It involves not only the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker, but countless other experts to keep my modern house with its modern simplifications like electricity and plumbing and refrigerator and gas and uh, dishwasher and radios and cars and numerous other labor-saving devices functioning properly. It involves health, doctors and dentists and appointments, medicine and vitamins, trips to the drugstore. It involves education, spiritual, intellectual, uh, physical, schools and school conferences, carpools, extra trips for basketball, orchestra practice, tutoring, camps, camp equipment and transportation. It involves clothes and shopping and laundry and cleaning and mending and letting down skirts. Sewing on buttons or finding someone else who can do it when I don't know how. It involves friends, my husband's friends, my children's friends, my own friends, and an endless arrangement of letters to get together, invitations, telephone calls, transportation, hither and yon. Any moms in the room this morning just go, uh-huh, amen. I can, feel, I can feel you. The Lord Jesus knows your busyness. He knows the pressure of a busied life. He understands the nonstop of our normal day. 
And he knows what it's like when you pull up to the traffic light and it turns green and the person behind you nails the horn because you haven't looked up because you're just trying to catch your breath. Most of all, he knows the pressures that you feel when you reach out to others to minister and they don't get it or worse, they refuse you. He understands what it's like when you open yourself up to someone to make yourself vulnerable and you feel like they don't even care. He understands what it's like when you take a stand for him and you're assaulted by a demonized culture. He understands what it's like to feel the pressures of life and faith. Jesus relates even there. Take comfort in this, friends. No matter how busy your life is, no matter how exhausted you may be this morning, he understands and can relate. And so next time you're overwhelmed, whether it's tomorrow on a Monday morning and everything is being thrown at you that life can throw at you, look and remember this scene from the word, Jesus ministering to the crowd. Notice he doesn't withdraw. He doesn't take himself away from the crowd yet. He's still among the masses. He's about to withdraw, but right now he's doing ministry. He's pouring himself out for these folks, but he's so pressured and he understands the busyness so much that he has a boat waiting for him so he can make a quick getaway. Friends, he can relate to us. Second point, the question then is, if we see Christ dealing with extreme pressure from all of these sources, then what is his solution for a pressured life? How does he deal with it? Look at verses 13 through 19. Verse 13, and when he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. Our Lord took in this text three distinct steps to deal with the demands of ministry. We'll walk through these fairly quickly. Number one, he withdrew to be alone. He withdrew to be alone, verse 13. In the first part of verse 13, he went up onto the mountain. He got away by himself. The gospel makes it clear that though he was God, he was fully God, he needed time alone. Though he had come to save man, which we see in chapter 1 and 2, though he had come to save man, he needed time to be away from man. This was so hard for our culture to understand, this idea of solitude. It's, it's so foreign to our culture and our civilization. Listen at this this quote, anything else will be accepted as a better excuse. If one sets aside time for a business appointment or a trip to the hairdresser or a social engagement, engagement or a shopping expedition, the time is accepted as unbreakable. But if one says, I cannot come because that's my hour to be alone, one is considered rude or egotistical or strange. What a commentary on our civilization when one has to apologize for it, make excuses for it, or even hide the fact that one practices solitude as a secret vice. Friends, we need times when we can just be alone. When we can get alone by ourselves and reflect and meditate on the word of God. These times are essential to our wholeness, to our well-being. Too many of us wake up to uh, an alarm clock that's got the radio on it. And so the first words that we hear and the first thing we hear in the morning are words. And we, we shave maybe with the, the news on in the background. We drive to work with busy traffic and the noise of the traffic around us. We endure an office all day long that has buzz and common uh, talk and motion, commotion all day long. Listen to sports radio on the drive home. Get home and watch the evening news as we relax and then drift off to sleep with the kids talking or playing in the background. Friends, we need silence. We need times when we withdraw and just get alone by ourselves, and it's not hard to do. It's a parked car in the neighborhood park for lunch instead of a busy restaurant. Or it's a sanctuary, church sanctuary, on a day other than Sunday or Wednesday. When you drive by, you just come in and sit in silence and reflect and meditate on the Word of God. It's a walk on a hiking path, maybe near your work. 
Or it's getting up early before the kids wake up and having some alone time downstairs. Friends, we need to be alone and to have times where we withdraw from the business of life and the pressures of life. Friends, this text and Christ's example show us, demand that we engage in retreat, withdraw from the chaos. Second thing, though, we see that he prayed to the Father. That's not immediately obvious in this passage from Mark, but if you go to the parallel account in Luke, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says that in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Again, follow the logic here, church family, from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, sinless Son of God, needed uh, time alone to be with the Father in prayer, then we as adopted, sinful sons and daughters of God certainly need that time as well. We follow this example that Christ has set. We get alone, but when we're alone, we know where to go once we're there. We go to the Father. We seek the face of God. This is what he's called us to do, to withdraw, to come before him in prayer, to pour our hearts out to him, to open our hearts up and just be transparent. And that's what he does through prayer. He may not change our circumstances, but he changes our outlook. He changes our understanding of our circumstances, conforms our will to his. We need time when we're alone and when we can seek the face of God through prayer. Third, look at what he does. And this is kind of the the final step that that we see Christ taking to deal with the pressures of the, the busy life. He shared his responsibility of ministry with others. Look at verse 14 through 19 again. And he appointed 12, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach, to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he named the, who he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus needed time alone. Jesus needed time before the Father where he was in prayer to the Father. But he also, even in in carving out this time out of his busy schedule, he also desired companions to serve with him in ministry. He desired those that would come alongside him in this great work. And we, friends, again, the, the logic from greater to lesser, if Christ desired this, if Christ brought men along to be with him in the work of the ministry, then, friends, we in our imperfections certainly need men and women to share our loads as well. We need men and women that we're walking through life with, doing ministry with, sharing our sins and our struggles with, holding each other accountable to the word of God. So a, a few quick observations regarding these men that Jesus called. I think we see the example of Christ in all three of these ways, getting alone, going before the Lord in prayer, calling men and women alongside of us in ministry to share our load, to share our burdens. But as we observe who these men are and the qualities, characteristics of these men, I think that we see in that a challenge for who we should see or how we should see ourselves as those that are called by Christ. So number one, he called those that he desired. You see this in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain And he called to him those whom he desired. Friends, this is a very simple biblical principle here. Jesus calls us to himself. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're a child of God, you are one that's put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's because he called you. It's as simple as that. God gets to choose. Verse 15 and 16 of our uh, John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. 
So not only does he choose those whom will serve him, he chooses how we will serve him. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, says that he gives us gifts for service, that he's built up the body of Christ and he's appointed and given gifts and he determines those places of ministry where we'll most be maximized and used for his glory to serve and to build up the body of Christ. So he calls us to serve him. He calls those whom he desires and he empowers and gives gifts to those that he's called. And praise God, right? Praise God that he calls us, that he wasn't just sitting up in heaven, twiddling his thumbs, hoping, man, I hope one day Matt James comes to me. I hope one day Matt just wakes up one day and realizes how great I am and he comes to me. No, he came to us in our sin. That's grace, friends, that he came to us and he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says. That's grace that he called us. He calls those whom he desired. But number two, he called them that they might be with him. Look at verse 14. And he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him. The idea here is that they would really come to know him, like not just a knowledge of him or not just, hey, this is this guy Jesus we've been following around for a while, but they would actually come to intimately know the Savior. It was an exchange of soul here, a new identification for these men as a result. Word for word, breath for breath, emotion for emotion, these men's wills were conformed to Christ's. Their their lives were no longer about what they wanted for their lives. Their life was about this one Jesus that had called them. How else do you account for 12 grown men leaving everything that they have and following someone that just met to their deaths? They call, he called them to be with him. And this is true for every one of us, that we must be with Jesus before we can serve Jesus. John 15, 5 says that I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the call that we see we've been given. I've called you and you're to be with me. And we're to remain in him, to rely on him, to depend on him, to spend time in communion with him. For we must be with him before we can serve him. We must be with him before we can expect the busyness and the pressures of life to make sense to us. You see this in Acts chapter 4. Right? This illustrated in Acts chapter 4. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended to heaven to be with the Father. And as he does, he gives them this great commission. These 12 men are commanded to go and preach the gospel to all nations. And in Acts chapter 4, we find that... Peter and John are doing exactly that. They're preaching the gospel of Christ and they're arrested for it. And they're brought before rulers and elders and teachers of the law in Jerusalem. And as they're put on trial, they're asked to explain themselves. And what does Peter do? He preaches the salvation through Christ alone. In, in his trial, when he's put on trial before this jury, he preaches the gospel. He preaches Christ alone for salvation. And these leaders saw the courage of Peter and John. They saw these men who were, who were arrested being courageous and bold in their faith, even though they were just brought before this council. And then they noticed this. They noticed that they were unschooled, ordinary, uneducated men. But it says that they were astonished. They were astonished. What were they astonished at? What did they take note of? What was it about Peter and John that they noticed in them as they're standing on trial? Acts 4.13 says this, that these men had been with Jesus. Friends, Peter and John had spent their uh, last few years with Jesus. They had watched him teach. They had listened to his words. They had followed him. They had seen him do miracles. They had been in the presence of the Savior. And as a result, they were changed. Even though they were uneducated, ordinary, unschooled men, their lives were different because of the encounter that they had had with Christ. They had been with him. So how about us, friends? Have you been with Jesus this week? 
Have you spent time in fellowship and in communion with Jesus this week? What about tomorrow? Will you be with him tomorrow? The Savior of the world, the God of the universe, desires fellowship and communion with us, and we would bypass that for some lesser thing? Will you be with him this week? Number three, he called them that he might send them out. Look at verse 14. And he appointed the 12, whom he named the apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Jesus doesn't actually send them out till Mark 6. We'll get there soon. But when he does, what do they preach? Well, we know from the other gospels, we have accounts of their sermons. We have accounts of what they're preaching. And they're preaching the same message that Christ preached in Mark chapter 1 that we've already seen. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. You may be thinking, but Matt, I'm not, I'm not called to be a preacher. God's not called me to be a preacher. And that may be true in the stand behind the pulpit and preach to a congregation of people kind of way. But make no mistake, friends, if God has called you to be his own, that he has called you to be sent out. And that sent out looks like you going to your neighborhood and to your family. God's placed you in a workplace or in a, in a community. He's placed you in a family so that you can be a mouthpiece for the gospel wherever you are. Are you preaching and going and taking his good news? He called them that he might send them. Friends, the case is the same for us. Number four, he called 12 ordinary men. 12 ordinary men. We read their names in verse 16 through 19. You've already seen them listed. But note that these were specific men, and we need to take note that they were 12. They were ordinary, and they were men. So 12. R.T. France says that this number is significant in his commentary because it symbolized the tribes of Israel. If you remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and they failed miserably. And here, Christ uh, chooses 12 men, and it's a suggestion that this is an idea for the restoration of Israel. That where Israel failed, he's now called 12 men, and Christ as new Israel, Christ is the better and perfect Moses, and David will lead these 12 men, and the world will be forever changed as a result. It's not explicit in Mark, but if you go to Matthew 19, 28, Matthew 19, 28, you see this idea even more explicitly. Additionally, this number 12 is significant. We know that because as Judas commits his act of treason, they select Matthias to go and replace that man so that their number is 12. There's not a vacancy in their number. They're only, uh, but they're, they're 12, but they're not only 12, they're 12 ordinary men. Notice that Christ didn't call men of great power and influence. He didn't call rulers or elders or these Pharisees or scribes that had all this power among the people. He simply chose men like me and like you Men like all of us in this room that are ordinary men empowered for an incredible task by an extraordinary God. They were 12 ordinary. They were also men. I don't think it's a coincidence here that among these 12, not one single woman was chosen. Well, so you have to ask the question, was it that Jesus didn't like women? Was it that Jesus had a bone to pick with women? No, we see Jesus treating women with incredible dignity and respect all throughout the Gospels. And actually, when you compare the Gospels and the way that Jesus treats women to the way the culture treated women in that day, Jesus actually treated women with more respect than the culture afforded them at this time. Or was it that Jesus didn't want to be seen traveling with women, maybe to protect himself from rumors or speculation that may go on? Well, no, because Luke's Gospel tells us that women did travel with Jesus and the 12 disciples. That Mary Magdalene and Martha and the other Mary were often with the disciples. Or was it because the culture was different at this time and the culture wouldn't have recognized women as spiritual leaders and so as, uh, as, as not to offend the culture, Jesus decided to be a little politically correct here and choose men? Well, no, I don't think so. 
Because at this point in the, in the culture, women were already recognized as prophetesses. And further, Jesus is no trouble offending people. We certainly see that he's offending the religious leaders at every turn. So why would he draw the line here? Well, friends, I think it's because we see here a scriptural principle that we see throughout the rest of the New Testament of male leadership. That men and women, listen to me closely, men and women have equal value before God. They were equally important to God, but they have different functions, different roles that God has given men and women. And that those roles are, are seen in the home. We have descriptions of that in the New Testament. Those roles are seen in the church. We have that in the New Testament. And so Jesus calls men to be his apostles, like we call men to be our pastors and elders in the New Testament church. First Timothy and Titus give us those prescriptions and so i think that's what he's doing here he's calling men to fill this role in this office of apostle and it emphasizes for us the male leadership in the home and church i think that's significant for us fifth and finally these men come from a variety of backgrounds you see peter and andrew and james and john they're all fishermen that's what they do by trade they're just average Joes that go down and fish for a living, and they sell fish, and that's, that's what they're... Matthew is a tax collector. We've studied him a couple weeks ago, that, that Levi was his name formerly. Now he's Matthew, gift of God, but he's a tax collector. He's hated by the people. He's the scum of the worst scum in the world. Simon was a zealot. That's, that's important because a zealot, not just, it's just not somebody that's zealous for just anything. A zealot in this day was a, a, a radical and violent political party that hated Rome and its tax collectors like Matthew. Zealots were those that would actually go out and assassinate Roman uh, leadership and officials and authorities and maybe even the tax collectors like Matthew, and so the, you want to talk about a, a miracle here, the fact that Simon, a zealot, and Matthew, a tax collector, could even be in the same room together without clawing each other's eyes out, that's a miracle from God. Isn't that what Christ does, though? Through the gospel, by the power of the gospel, he changes hearts so that the worst of enemies can become brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the irony of all ironies, and this is why you have to love the word of God and the way Mark is weaving this story for us. That last week we saw two enemies come together, the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they come together to destroy Christ. And now in the text, this, this very next segment in the gospel, we see Simon, a zealot who hates and would love to kill Rome and its people, and Matthew, a tax collector working for Rome, come together. But they've not come together to kill Christ. They've come together to follow Christ to them their deaths. Friends, that's the power of the gospel. The other six men, we don't have a lot of information on, but we know a little bit about them. What we do know is that they're laymen. None of them are trained. None of them have been to seminary. None of them are teachers of the law. None of them are rabbis. They come from all different walks of life. And here's what they have in common, that they left everything that they knew and they followed this one named Jesus, even though it cost them their lives. Every single one of them. So friends, let me wrap this up. In the choosing of these 12 men, we, men, we learn from Christ's example that we need to lean on others, that we need brothers and sisters in Christ that we can walk through life with, church family. And, and we may not be a perfect church at Poplar Spring, but let it be said of us that we love one another and that we walk with one another, even through the hard stuff, even through difficult and trying circumstances, that we are willing to carry one another, burdens and all. But friends, also in the choosing of these apostles, we see a challenge for us. That as Christ has called us, as he's chosen us to follow him, as he did with these guys, he's called us to himself and he sent us out with a mission. 
And that's to preach the gospel, to make known the gospel to every person that we come into contact with. And it's worth giving our lives for, church family. Will you be on mission for this king this week? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of a pressured life, overwhelmed with busyness, overwhelmed with schedules that keep us running all day long, that, God, we can rest in you, knowing our salvation has been accomplished, but that also we can see the example of Christ and know what is needed in our life when we're overwhelmed by busyness. And then, God, as we see the, the calling of these 12 men, these apostles, God, help us to know that our call is the same, to lay our lives down before the throne of Christ. Not our will, but your will be done, Father. Call us where you would have us go. Send us to the nations. Send us to the lostness in the United States. Send us to our neighbor across the street. Because you're worth giving our lives for. Help us to respond this morning to your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.